Hey everybody, welcome back, all you human beings, you humanists, you humanizers, whatever we call ourselves. I'm glad we're together. Yeah, I'm Bart Campolo. This is Humanize Me, my podcast. And this week's episode of Humanize Me actually is sponsored by Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? A book by Franz de Waal, who is a world-renowned primatologist, um, whose other book uh, about bonobos was one of my my all-time favorites and really changed the way I thought about morality. But this book is so cool. It's a book about evolutionary cognition. It's about how we come to know things the way we do. And basically, the, the, the big argument of this book is, is that what separates human beings from other animals is not the qualitative distinction that we thought it was, but it's really a matter of degrees. And, and in some ways, not even a matter of degrees. It's not like we're just more than. There are some animals that have modes of knowing or ways of cognition that outstrip us in certain areas. There are animals with better senses of smell, who can differentiate sounds better, who can, who can differentiate between members of their own species better than we can. I, mean, I, I didn't know this. Like wasps can, wasps know each other by face. Hey, who knew this? And, and there's stuff in there about elephants and about, you know, apes and, and even about birds. I, I've always thought, you know, bird brains, but it turns out that birds and in particular crows and magpies are incredibly intelligent and social animals that, you know, they understand the future and the past and they can remember things and they can differentiate things and, and they can altruism and, and compassion show up in all different kinds of animals. And anyway, it's a great book. I recommend it highly. And there you go. Now, this week's episode, you're going to say, who are you talking to this week? And the answer is, I'm not talking to anybody. Like, we're going to take this thing uh, weekly. And, and, and that means that some of these episodes are going to be me being a monologuist. I love that phrase, monologuist. I, you know, I remember seeing 20-some years ago this movie by Spalding Gray called Swimming to Cambodia. And they described him as a monologuist. And I thought, like, wow, I didn't know that was a thing. And here I am, I've grown up to become one. But like, yeah, so anyway, uh, in th this week's episode, I'm, I'm just going to tell you a story. And it's a short episode, it's a short story, but um, I hope you like it. Yeah, I really hope you like it. And if you want to know more about what's going on, if you want to support the podcast, if you're interested in the counseling stuff I've been doing lately that I've talked about on, on some other shows, it's all at bartcampola.org. I encourage you to check out the website. Um, there's links to books and, and all the different stuff that we talk about here. But, you know, that's enough of that. Let's get on with the show. You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. So a few months ago, I had this amazing experience. And, and I don't really know what to do with it except just to tell the story and, and, and leave it there. So many of you know that in addition to doing the podcast and doing, doing some counseling, I, uh, I'm the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. A voluntary position, which is why, why you know, a lot of people support the organization through the website uh, at barcampolo.org because they know that like nobody pays you to work with these college students. But I take it really seriously, that job, and I love it. Um, because I love those students. I love working with them, uh, you know, helping young people grow and figure out what to do with their lives. 
you know, I know so many students these days that I, I can't even remember where I got to know most of them. I mean, some of them come to the meetings of USC Secular Student Fellowship. Some of them come to these dinners that Marty and I host on, on, on Sunday nights where, where we invite the whole community to come and the kids come and they bring their friends and we eat together and play games and I give a little talk. It's a very sort of, you know, folksy atmosphere. And, 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 and then some of the students I get to know, like when I'm, I'll let uh, professors will invite me to come and lecture in their classes or sometimes I'll just be out on campus you know, eating my lunch and I'll be, well, I'll see some kid reading a book alone and I'll say, Hey, what are you reading? What are you studying? And you know, a lot of times they'll be like, yeah, I'm reading this. This is, this is what I'm into. This is how I got here. And then they'll say like, Hey, wait a second. What do you do here? Are you like a professor? And I'm like, no, I'm the humanist chaplain to which they invariably reply. What's that? And so, well, you know, it kind of means I'm like the minister on campus who's looking after the spiritual lives of all the students who want to build better relationships and be better people and make the world a better place, but don't believe in God, don't believe in supernaturalism. To which half the time, the student will look back at me and say, wait a second, that's me. You just described me. You know, can I join your group? And it's fun. I mean, like we actually, I actually get people in the group that way. I mean, it's like, I guess what you would call humanist evangelism is actually really easy you know, way easier than it was when I was doing Christian evangelism. Because I remember at that point, you know, you'd get a kid excited about your fellowship, excited about the stuff you were doing or about values, relationships there. And they would be like, yeah, this is great. I want to be a part. Like, what do I have to believe to join? And you'd say like, well, you actually have to believe quite a few really difficult to believe propositions to get in. But, uh, but with this stuff, you know, you say like, look, you don't have to believe anything that you don't have evidence for. Like, you just have to share these values. You just have to want to be together this way. And so it's, it's, it's fun. Um, it's fun stuff. But, but, but after a while, I, I know all these kids. I don't know where I got to know them. And there's this one kid that had been coming to our dinners last semester. And I don't remember where I met Chris. But I really liked him right away. I mean, like, but while, while I liked him, he seemed really vulnerable to me in a way. He just, there, there was something that I thought like, ah. And so after, after a few of these dinners, as I, I dropped him an email and I said, hey, I'd love to take you out for, for tea. I just want to hear your story, talk to you, kind of find out how I can be a more supportive friend. Now, you might think that like students would be put off by that or they would be suspicious of like, who's this old man who wants to have tea with me? But strangely enough, like you'd be surprised at how open young people are to a caring adult who just wants to hear their story. And so I get this email back saying, yeah, yeah, let's do it. We set up the time and the place. But I noticed that when the email came back, it came back from a woman's with a woman's name on it in the, in the email address. And, and you know, I didn't know, like I, I didn't know the story behind that, but I figured like, ah, it's no big deal. So, so anyway, we would get together for coffee and we're sitting there talking and I said, look, hey, I just, I noticed this email came back from this woman's name. Like, what's up with that? And Chris looked at me and said, look, I just, I might as well just tell you, like, I'm a trans man. And I was like, oh. And, and this, this didn't really throw me, like, because based on kind of what I was seeing, it made sense to me. And I've known a, a lot of people you know i have a lot of gay and lesbian friends and, and i've known some transgendered people you know who are in transition 
And so I was like, oh, okay. So, so what this means is like, I'm moving from woman to man. Like I'm in that transition and the university just hasn't accepted that and changed my email address accordingly yet. And I was like, oh, okay. And, and that really alerted me that I wanted to kind of be supportive in this. And so, you know, I asked a bunch of questions, the kind of questions I would ask of any kid in that situation. And it turned out, yeah, it's been a tough life. You know, high school was tough, not a lot of friends. When Chris came out, you know, the parents were like, nah, this is not okay with us. And they, you know, he ended up moving in to live with an aunt and an uncle. And, um, and, and they were fundamentalist Christians who, in a sense, offered, a, you know, a, a haven, but in another sense, were just always all over about the sexual stuff and the orientation stuff and praying. And it's been a tough time. And Chris was really honest about all the rejection that, that he experienced. And so, so I was like, okay, next week at dinner, I, I, I put it in my mind, like, I'm going to, I'm going to really try to help in this sense. And so at dinner the next week, I'm taking Chris, I'm introducing him to everybody. I'm like, this is my friend, Chris. He's a great guy. Oh, he's wonderful. Cause like you, you know, th there was some ambiguity there and I was like, he's wonderful. You got to get to know him. You'll like him. Cause I wanted everybody to relate to to Chris the way Chris wanted to be related to. And, uh, and it, it was great. And so, you know, we were doing stuff over the next few weeks and, and I felt like Chris was really becoming a part of the group. When one day, about a month or so later, Marty and I are getting dinner ready. We're there early and Chris wanders in early to help out with the cooking. And he's dressed in a way that just throws me off. Like, all I can say is sort of like a feminine way. And, and, and he'd come from a, a carnival at which there'd been face painting. And he had this face painting, this very feminine kind of face paint all over, you know, with sparkles and all the stuff. And I'm just thinking, huh. And so, you know, the next week I, I said, hey, let's have coffee again. And we sat down and I started to ask questions. And I said, look, I'm trying to be a good friend, but I'm not sure if I'm being as supportive as I need to be. And as I started to sort of stammer around this issue of like how Chris had dressed at dinner, Chris cut me off. I said, listen, I've been lying to you, Bart. Like, I, I'm sorry, but like, it's embarrassing, but I've been lying to you. I'm not really a trans man. And I said, what? I said, no, no, no. <clears throat> I said, I'm agendered. And I, I was like, agender, what does that mean? And Chris said, well, you know, like you think of man, men and women, like masculine and feminine, like they're, they're two points on a binary spectrum. And like transsexuals are people that are moving from one point on that spectrum to the other point. They're transitioning. But I'm agender, Bart, because like I don't fit on that spectrum at all. I don't identify as a man. I don't identify as a woman. Gender just doesn't make any sense to me. I was like, oh, I mean, this was a new thing for me. I, I, I said, wow. I, I said, okay, but, but why didn't you just tell me that at the beginning? And Chris said, because I, I didn't know you well enough to trust you. And, and to be honest with you, like being a gender, you experience a lot of, a lot of discrimination, a lot of, a lot of kind of rejection. <laughs> said even in the, even in the LGBT community, sometimes people like me 
are put down or marginalized. Like we're an embarrassment to the rest of the community because like we don't fit into the kind of the categories that everybody has. And, and, and so I didn't know you and so I didn't trust you, but I've gotten to know you and, and, the, and the gang well enough that I felt like I needed to tell you. And I was like, wow. And so we, we started, we started talking about like, what's that been like and how does it work? And at some point I said, look, I, I want to really support you here, but like, I don't even know, like, what do I call you? Like, what pronouns do I use? You know, because, and this is a thing on college campuses sometimes. You'll, you'll be in a group, students will be introducing themselves, and they'll actually introduce themselves, say, hi, I'm Mary, um, I'm female, I go, I use feminine pronouns, her, hers, she, and, and, and I, when, when kids will introduce themselves to me that way, I'm always sort of like, why are you doing that? Like, isn't it obvious? But they do that to kind of try to make space for people for whom it's not obvious. And, and I've actually met some people who have said, yeah, the pronouns I use are they, their, them. Um, people who are self-described as queer or, 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 or they'll say like, look, I, you know, I don't want to be he or I don't want to be she, I'm, they, they're them. And so I said to Chris, I said like, do, do I call you they, they're them? And Chris shook his head and said, no, because I don't, I, I'm not a woman, I'm not a plural. I'm not both a man and a woman at the same time. I'm neither. So honestly, if you want to, if you want to make me comfortable, call me it. And that, that threw me. I was like, wait, you want me to call you it? Like, oh, it's here. It wants a hamburger. Like, I was like, I, I don't think I can do that. Because to do that, like that, it is, that's what we call things. Like, you're not a thing. You're a human being. I don't want to dehumanize you. And Chris smiled and said, look, it doesn't dehumanize me. It degenders me. And that's what I need. It's funny, the more we talk, Chris said, look, I wish we were in Sweden. It would be a lot easier for both of us if we were in Sweden because in Sweden they have gender neutral pronouns in Swedish. But in English, it's, it's, it's one way or the other. It's binary and, and that's what makes it tough. And so, please, it. It's funny, I came home and I said, I was having dinner with Marty and my daughter Miranda, and our daughter Miranda, gosh, and I was telling the story and I said, I'm so uncomfortable. I, 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 t I told Chris, I was so uncomfortable calling it, it. And my, my daughter, Miranda, who's like studying to become a therapist, looked at me and said, oh yeah, dad. And in that situation, what's really important is what makes you comfortable. And I, you know, I laughed and I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, here's this kid who's been through all kinds of rejection, who, who doesn't fit in anywhere in some ways. And here I am going like, well, we need to use pronouns that work for me when it's telling me what works for it. And so that's what I did for the next few days. I practiced around the house. Like I referred to Chris over and over again. I was like, well, Marty, I'm going to the USC. I hope I see Chris. It's a really neat person. Or yeah, I got a call from Chris today. It said this and, and it, it's going to be at dinner next week. And I hope it liked the food that we had. And I mean, I'm using it over and over again, trying to wrap my head around it. And it may seem strange to you, but after two or three days, it felt natural to me. I got it, so to speak. And I, and I called Chris and said, look, now I got a bigger question. Like everyone in the group understands you as a man, as a trans man. But if like you're going to have an authentic relationship with everybody, if you're going to really be part of this community, people got to know the truth about you. So how, how are we going to, 
how are we going to let everybody know? And Chris got real nervous because it's a shy person. And, and it said to me like, look, I don't really feel comfortable getting up and giving a speech. And I said, hey, well, what, what if I gave the speech? Like I give a talk after every dinner. What if I gave a talk about changing our mind? Changing our minds. Like, you know, because I had just been reading this book about science about the, it's called the, the Hunt for Vulcan. And it was all about how um, Newtonian, when Newtonian physics, the understanding of gravity, explained the movement of the planets and, and, and scientists were working out all this stuff, that there was this one planet, Mercury, that, that its orbit didn't fit Newtonian physics. And for years, the only way scientists could figure out, astronomers could figure out that it could be that way is if there was this other planet hiding in the corona of the sun that we couldn't see that was exerting a gravitational pull. And so they called that planet Vulcan. And for years, people would say, oh, I saw it or I've, I've calculated it and there it is. And for 50 years, it went on like that until Einstein shows up with the theory of relativity. And the entire world had to change its mind about the truth. And Einsteinian physics explained this stuff, you know, the, and, um, and, and how that's the cool thing about being secular is that when you find out you're wrong about something, you don't have to hang on to, you know, some ancient scripture or some, you know, thousand year old way of approaching them that you just go like, oh, I, we were wrong about that. Okay. And we, you just change your mind. I mean, that's the beauty of science is that it advances by admitting it was wrong um, rather than by trying to cling to, no, 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 this is true and bend the facts around its dogma. It, it keeps changing its dogma to, to fit the facts, fit new evidence. And so I said, I said, what if I give a talk where I talk about that stuff, about, about changing our minds and then, and then shift over like, like, like a big part of becoming a humanist, being a humanist, about becoming a good person is being willing to change your mind. And then I tell the story of, of what you told me. And Chris said, yeah, that sounds good. And so, you know, we planned it out. And I actually even invited um, the head of, of USC's LGBT center, who's a good friend of mine, a, an Episcopal um, minister um, named Kelby. And I, I said, Kelby, why don't you come just because you, you know Chris and, and you know what's going on. You can kind of like see if you, you can help me make sure I do it right. And so... Um, so that night we had dinner and after dinner we're, you know, clear the dishes. And I said, all right, it's time for the talk. And I started to talk and I started in on the whole Vulcan stuff. And then I, I made the point about how we get to change our minds. And then I said, this just happened to me with Chris. And I, I told the story of Chris sitting down with me and saying, hey, I've been lying to you because I didn't trust you. But here's the truth. And, and, and at that point, everyone in the room was really uncomfortable because here I am talking about Chris and Chris is sitting right there. And they're like, wow, he's really outing this kid. And, uh, and everyone got nervous. But at that point, Chris spoke up with a smile and said, uh, hey, thanks a lot, Bart. You make me sound like an untrusting liar. Um, and everybody laughed because then they realized that Chris was in on it. And then I went on. And talked about what I had learned about agendered people and the discrimination that they go through. And I said, look, Chris is one of our people now. And so I don't know how, like, like I don't, we have to change our minds. We all have to change our minds on this one. And I said, listen, I don't care what you do at the end of dinner. Um, 
who you hug goodbye, you know, whether you help with dishes or whatever. But I'm telling you this, everybody in this room, before you leave this room tonight, you need to go over to Chris and tell it that you're glad it's part of us and, 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 and say goodbye. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I felt like it went over. Some people asked some good questions afterwards. And then we played the game. And Marty and I went in to, to kind of start cleaning up the dishes. And I popped my head out into the big room to see what's going on. And Chris is sitting at this table surrounded by like 20 other students. And they're all talking and laughing and asking questions. And I'm looking at this kid who's never been part of anything like this. And then surrounded by all these people just enfolded in this group. And I, I thought to myself, man, this is, why, this is why you do this. This is why you build a fellowship like this. This is why you build a community. You build a community like this so that it can wrap itself around a person who needs to be part of something, who needs to be included. You, know, you, you build a family so that you can bring somebody who doesn't have a family into the family. I thought, yeah, that's what all the secular community building is all about. It's about creating a community of people who say, we love each other and we want to make the best of this world and we want to connect and build relationships. And anybody that needs to be a part of it, you can be a part of it. All you have to do is decide you want to be part of it. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's. People sometimes say to me in the secular world, they say like, yeah, you know, that's all great, all that stuff, you know, beliefs, but like, why do we need communities? Why do we, you know, I, I don't want to be a joiner. I'm not a joiner. I'm just, I'm fine all by myself. Who needs church? Who needs fellowship? Who needs that? And I'm going like, you know what? You say you want to be a loving person, but there are some forms of love that an individual can't give. There are some forms of love that you need a group for. There are some things only a group can do. And that's why we need to build them. And it's been great. I mean, like Chris is, you know, every, every, every time we get together, I, I look and I go like, you know, making friends, it's part of the group, it's connected. And, and it's funny because I listen to the kids and sometimes people will trip up on the pronoun thing. But when they do, Chris is really gracious. Like, it's all right, it's all right. But I watch the kids and it's so cool because like, they'll say like, yeah, Sarah, she's one of the coolest people I know. And Joey, oh man, he's so wonderful and warm. And Chris, it's one of my favorite people in this group. It's one of my favorite friends. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the story. And um, it's funny because I I don't know if I'm telling it for you or if I'm just telling it for me because every time I think of that experience, every time I picture Chris in that room, with all those new friends, a person rejected by family, rejected by friends, rejected by people, even the LGBT community sometimes, all of a sudden unfolded. It just, it makes me happy. That Episcopal minister called me the next day and said, Bart, you know, I don't know another fellowship. I don't know another group on this campus that could have done what your group did. I don't, I don't know. And none of the Christian groups could have, could have done it. None of them would have the same kind of room that your, your guys were able to make, your folks were able to make. She said, I felt like I saw something historic there, something amazing. And it was. And it is. And so if you're out there thinking you're going to be able to reach your fullest potential as a people lover all by yourself, 
If you're going to go just keep hitting people one-on-one, you know, just, just random acts of kindness and all that stuff. That stuff is beautiful. That stuff is important. But there's a kind of love that you're going to need a group to give. And for some of you, there's a kind of love that you're going to need a group to experience. And so, yeah, we got work to do. Hey, that's it. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next time. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.